I'm going to invite Louise to come and give us our gospel reading, which is Luke 7, 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is back in uh, Capernaum. And you're probably beginning to notice that uh, Jesus spent a lot of time in this bustling uh, town on the shore of Lake Galilee. Uh, Peter's home was in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus based himself there. And actually, a lot of the Gospels uh, focus on Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. Uh, Incidentally, the remains of uh, Capernaum, and indeed Peter's house, uh, can still be seen today. And I know that the members of our church have been uh, fortunate enough to to see that place. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees. The the Pharisees didn't have any official function. They were more of a religious pressure group. But many Pharisees held seats on the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. So they had quite a lot of uh, power and influence. And in the Gospels, they often get lumped together with the teachers of the law, sometimes the scribes as well. So we see this alliance between uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law coming together to oppose Jesus. Lumping them together like that is, is, is like saying the Jewish religious leaders. They were the ones who were supposed to be providing spiritual guidance to God's people, leading them closer to God. They knew the scriptures, uh, the, uh, the books of our Old Testament. Uh, they claimed to be zealous for God, and they certainly appeared to be very devout and pious. Uh, they should have been the first to recognize God's Messiah and to follow him wholeheartedly, but they weren't. Uh, when they came face to face with God, they didn't even recognize him. Uh, They hated him, and they opposed him at every turn. Uh, Sadly, today, uh, there are some super, super religious people, uh, people who would call themselves Christians that stand in opposition to Jesus and maybe don't even realize that that's what they're doing. So if these super religious Pharisees didn't recognize God when he was there in person in front of them, then who did recognize him? 
Well, it was fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, the poor, the crippled, the leprous, and the disenfranchised, in many cases, uh, people whom uh, society would look down on. And now we hear about a centurion who looked to Jesus for help. A centurion was a a Roman soldier in charge of uh, 80 men. It would would have been 100 originally, but by the time of Jesus, it, it would have been 80 men. And being a Roman soldier, he was a Gentile. So for the Jews, uh, there were only two categories of people. There were Jewish people, and then there was everybody else, the non-Jews or the Gentiles. By and large, the Jews thought that God's promises uh, were for them, but not for the Gentiles. So Gentiles were at best not highly regarded, and at worst hated and despised. Uh, Some Gentiles were hated more than others, And the Romans were hated most of all because they were the occupying force, they were the enemy, they were subjugating God's people. So the last person, the last person that anyone would expect to recognize God's Messiah would be a Gentile Roman soldier. Nevertheless, here we have a Roman centurion who turns to Jesus when his servant becomes severely ill. And we're not talking about a a case of man flu, as serious as that might be. Uh, This uh, servant was literally uh, on the verge of death. And at this point, I think we have to say something about this centurion's character. He clearly cared about this servant. Uh, This servant is not seen as a piece of property. He's a human being worthy of being cared for and looked after. Now, a cynical person might say, well, uh, servants or slaves were worth a lot of money, so this centurion is simply trying to protect his investment. But that doesn't really fit with the rest of the story. The centurion showed a great deal of humility. He's said to love the nation of Israel, and he even built the synagogue, uh, whether that means that he used the manpower Uh, of the soldiers that he commanded to help build their synagogue, whether he invested his own money or both. Uh, The Jewish elders, they say that he's built this synagogue. So this is a man with a lot of authority, part of an occupying force, a hated enemy, and yet in spite of all that, he's managed to win the hearts and the minds of the local population. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of respect for this centurion. It seems that he has a really good heart. So his servant is sick. He decides to send for Jesus. We don't exactly know uh, how he heard about Jesus, but if he lives in and around Capernaum, he's undoubtedly heard about what Jesus is doing. He may even have witnessed Jesus' teaching and preaching and uh, even his miracles. And in the first instance... The centurion does send for Jesus. That is, he's hoping that Jesus will come to his home to heal his servant. Because if we look at verse 3, it says, The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So why didn't the centurion go himself? Well, later in the passage, we discover that the centurion didn't feel worthy to go and ask Jesus himself. Perhaps he thought that there were too many cultural and religious and maybe even political barriers. Perhaps he felt that as a 
Gentile and a member of the occupying force, he didn't have any right to seek an audience with the Jewish Messiah. He felt unworthy. He felt unworthy. And this feeling of unworthiness is, I think, a trap uh, that all of us can fall into at times. Uh, I mean, don't we find it harder to enter into God's presence, harder to pray, let's say, when we feel that we've let ourselves down, or or worse still, if we feel that we've let God down. Maybe we uh, haven't been as patient as we would have liked to have been with our kids or our spouse or the people at work, Uh, or perhaps we've allowed ourselves to get stressed out and worked up about something, or maybe we've fallen into some other kind of sin that we've been trying to avoid. And it can be quite hard in the wake of that to turn to God, because there is that sense of unworthiness. Uh, when I was a teenager, um, I came to faith and I put myself under a lot of pressure, I think, to, to lead the perfect Christian life. Uh, it won't surprise you to learn uh, that I couldn't do it, uh, because I'm not perfect, and none of us are. Uh, but there were so many things in my life that were unwholesome and ungodly. To be honest, I felt like a hypocrite. I thought, I can't do this. I believe the Christian message, but I can't live the Christian life. I didn't make allowance for the fact that I was a very uh, young and new Christian and had a lot of learning and growing and changing to do, just as we all do. I just felt unworthy, and that feeling of unworthiness hindered me from coming into God's presence to the point where I hid from God, effectively, for about 10 years. So don't ever feel unworthy to enter into Jesus' presence. Uh, that can be a slippery slope to moving further away from Christ. The devil will use it as a wedge to get between us and Christ. Jesus always wants us to turn to him, to go to him. Always. The centurion felt unworthy because uh, he was a Gentile and a Roman soldier. He may have felt unworthy because of his sin as well. We don't know. But we do sometimes feel unworthy because of our sin and our brokenness. And sin is a barrier between us and God, but Jesus has removed that barrier. He's overcome it. He died on a cross, and he took your sin and my sin upon himself. So if we put our trust in Jesus, God will look at us as if we have never sinned. If only those who are worthy can come to Jesus, then we are all excluded along with every other human being who has ever lived. But look in the Gospels at the kind of people that Jesus spent time with, was loving and compassionate towards those he healed and forgave. In many cases, the worst of sinners. I mean, the Apostle Paul described himself before he came to Christ as the worst of sinners. We don't need to be worthy to come to Jesus. We just need to be willing to come to Jesus, and he will receive us with love, compassion, healing, and forgiveness. We should not ignore the sin in our lives. It needs to be dealt with, but we must not allow our sin and any corresponding feeling of unworthiness to be a barrier that comes between us and Jesus. Jesus removed that barrier for all who are willing to repent. So the centurion uh, felt 
unworthy to go to Jesus. He sent some Jewish leaders in his stead. And we're told the elders pleaded with Jesus saying, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. This is a Jewish, uh, the, the elders of the Jewish community. And, and they seem to have made the assumption that Jesus probably wouldn't be willing to help a Gentile Roman soldier. That was their assumption. And so in a way, they tried to prove the centurion's worthiness to Jesus. But Jesus went with them, not because the centurion was worthy, but because he demonstrated faith by sending for Jesus in the first place. Meanwhile, the centurion, who had originally asked for Jesus to come and heal his servant, seemed to be having second thoughts. He may be thinking, I shouldn't have asked Jesus to come to my home. Uh, not because he's not had time to tidy up and it's all a bit of a mess, uh, but because he doesn't feel worthy to have Jesus coming under his roof. May also have been in consideration for Jesus. Uh, for a Jew to enter a Gentile's home, from a Jewish perspective, that would make them unclean. And maybe the centurion uh, doesn't uh, want to put Jesus in that position. So he sends out his friends to meet Jesus with a message. He says, Don't come to my home. I'm not worthy. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he talks about authority from a soldier's perspective. He says, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. So that's the message that he sends to Jesus via his friends. Now, most people in this country, at least, have never had a very extreme level of authority exercised over them. Now, some people uh, might have been um, on the receiving end of uh, phenomenally strict parenting. Uh, Some bosses are absolute taskmasters. Some have served in the armed forces. Uh, But most people uh, have not experienced very rigid authority structures. Uh, when soldiers are in basic training, one of the first thing, things that they're taught is to respond to orders immediately and with a sense of urgency. And, and this imperative is instilled on the drill square and on the assault course in the field, in the gymnasium. Uh, so, for example, if they have a PT session that lasts for an hour, they will literally be given hundreds of orders in quick succession and they're expected to carry out each one uh, immediately do exactly what they've been told. I actually found a video clip of some soldiers uh, at a very early stage of their training uh, doing a PT session. So these are guys who are not long out of civilian life, and they're essentially they're exercising, but they're essentially learning to obey orders and do it very, very quickly without question. We'll just watch this for about a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I think that helps us to understand what this centurion means when he says, I tell this one, go, and he goes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Uh, that is a level of authority uh, that most people kind of don't ever experience, uh, but that's what this soldier's perspective would have been. And what's amazing, what's amazing is that the centurion believes that Jesus has that level of authority over disease and sickness. He says, go, and it's gone instantly. It happens. So despite his pagan background, he has grasped a key tenet of the Jewish faith, that Israel's God has complete power and authority over the whole of creation. And even more amazingly, he has recognized that this one true God is present and active in the person of Jesus Christ. The centurion understands authority. He likely takes regular orders from a commander in Caesarea, which is about 80 kilometers away. Every day he gives orders, and he knows that those orders will be carried out to the letter. And he recognizes that his authority isn't even a shadow of that which Jesus possesses. He knows that Jesus only has to say the word, and his servant will be healed immediately. Now, in one sense, a military commander isn't a great analogy for Jesus's authority because Jesus doesn't exercise his authority in a rigid and draconian way. But we make a serious error if we reduce Jesus's authority to a kind of laissez-faire, well, we can obey him, but we don't really have to, he's not that bothered kind of thing. Jesus can speak a word and a man who is on his deathbed is healed. Disease and sickness obey him. Jesus can speak a word, and a storm is stilled. The wind and the waves obey him. In fact, Jesus spoke the entire universe into being. Yet when he commands us, we um and we are, and we decide how we might respond but we only have that choice and that freedom because God loves us and has given us free will. We do ourselves a disservice when we read Jesus' commands but forget or overlook the level of authority that he has. We can take a lesson from this centurion who seemed to grasp Jesus' authority better than anyone else. And what I love about this story is that the centurion's faith surprises Jesus. Normally it's Jesus that goes around shocking and surprising people, but here we've got the centurion who surprises Jesus. And the Greek word that's used for this surprise is thalmaso. It means to wonder, to marvel, to be astonished. It's amazing that this centurion could claim to have astonished the creator of the universe. I find that incredible. The only other place this word is used of Jesus is in Mark 6, verse 6, which says he was amazed at their lack of faith, referring to the people of his hometown of Nazareth. So when it came to the people he grew up with, Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. But then we have this Roman centurion who is in every sense an outsider, and Jesus is amazed because he has such great faith. And Jesus turned to the crowd and said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith in even in Israel. 
Now, that would have been quite a stinging remark for the Jews to hear. I've not found such great faith even in Israel. They were God's people. How could a Gentile outdo them with his level of faith in their God? It's like when you think you're really good at something and a complete amateur comes along and shows you up. It's a hard pill to swallow. Um, when I was with my family in Hungary last year, we played a lot of table tennis. I had a, a table uh, where we were staying, and um, I, I tend to think I'm pretty good at table tennis. And uh, we were playing doubles, so it was me and Teg, so that's my uh, uh, nephew's girlfriend. And, uh, and then my mum and dad um, decided that they were going to play. And when they came into this game, I, I, thought, I thought, oh, that's sweet. Mum and dad want to have a go. Good on them. Good on them for having a go. Anyway, we got started, and mum didn't have a clue what she was doing. She had to ask my dad how to hold the bat and how to score points and all that kind of thing. But inexplicably, we started to lose. And my brother's laughing his head off at the sidelines. And I'm thinking, okay, they've had a few lucky shots. Uh, Long story short, we lost the game. I mean, it's a hard thing to admit that I lost at table tennis to my elderly parents. It was a very humbling experience. I thought my parents were inferior table tennis players. So to be outdone by them was uh, was pretty humiliating. The only saving grace was that I did subsequently beat my brother. So when he was mocking me for getting beaten by mum and dad, I was able to say, well, you got beaten by the person who was beaten by mum and dad. (laughs) We're quite a competitive family, I'm afraid. And for the Jews... The thing that set them apart was their devotion to Yahweh, to their God, the one true God of Israel. To, to be outdone in the area of faith by a Gentile, by a Roman centurion, well, that would have been a, a, an extremely hard thing for them to hear. But Jesus was making a very clear point that God was opening the floodgates for Gentile inclusion. Non-Jews would now be welcomed into God's family, not just uh, on the odd occasion as we see in the Old Testament, which those occasions point forward to this, but en masse. And this was such an important message for Jesus' first followers, most of whom were Jewish. The early Christians struggled to accept that Gentiles could be included among God's people. And we see that play out in the book of Acts and in some of Paul's letters. Gentiles were eventually accepted into the church, uh, but the early Jewish Christians, they took a fair bit of persuading. They took some convincing. That's why I think Jesus makes this point, and he makes it so clear, because he could see that this would be a problem uh, in the future. And for us, it's helpful to be reminded that no one is an outsider from God's perspective. No one is an outsider from God's perspective. Everyone has the opportunity to repent, to put their, to put their faith in Jesus, and to be received into God's kingdom. Uh, needless to say, the centurion's servant was healed without Jesus even seeing the centurion or his servant. We have the assurance that Jesus wants us to go to him, especially when we feel unworthy. And when we understand the nature and the extent of Jesus's authority, it should inspire us to put our complete faith in Jesus, just as that centurion did. 
The kind of faith that says, I know Jesus can do it, and I'm trusting him to do it. That kind of faith can completely transform our relationship with God and our prayer lives in particular. Of course, God does sometimes say no. God does sometimes say wait uh, for reasons that uh, we may never know in this life. We, we may only find out when we meet God face to face. But if nothing else, this story tells us that we should not hesitate to ask Jesus for things with confidence. He has power and he has authority over the whole of creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, recognize that sometimes when we come to you in prayer, our faith may be very weak. We're kind of almost you know, half, half expecting you to act and half expecting nothing to happen. And Father, we pray that you help us to amend that, to have the kind of faith that the centurion had, that he was quite happy for Jesus just to say the word from where he was. Father, give us that kind of faith. Build that kind of faith in us as individuals and as a church so that we can see uh, the the power and the efficacy of prayer, the power and the efficacy of going to Jesus with all of our problems and situations and circumstances and uh, concerns and needs. Pray, Father, that you will help us to grow in this area. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.